Amen. Well, you'll be pleased to know we're two-thirds of the way through, and the back half is a lot more application-y and uh, less heavy going. But we've, uh, what page are we on, someone? 16. That's right. How does this work in practice? You see, we've, we've seen that the Bible is everything you'll ever need for guidance, but what do we do with that in practice? How does it work? Well, on page 16 there, you can see a way that I've found helpful to think about this. It's from that book, Guidance and the Voice of God. And here's the three-step process that it recommends. Number one, you work out what the Bible does say about the decision. What are the matters of righteousness? And then you also use your wisdom as well. Step two, because the Bible says that we should be wise. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. And then thirdly, Everything else in the decision doesn't matter. If you've considered God's commands and if you've used your wisdom, then you have pleased God in your decision. And so with the rest of the things, the trivial things, you can just choose whatever you want. Drive whatever colour car you like. Flip a coin. And it is actually perfectly fine to choose the things that you like. God's not a masochist. He's not out to get you. And provided that you've thought about what God has said and you've been wise, the rest is trivial. Choose. Now, there'll be aspects of each of those three categories in almost every decision. And I'll give you some examples. I think it gets clearer as you work some examples out. But let me just dive into that second category for a second. Wisdom. Turn over to page 17. What is wisdom? I think sometimes Christians can be a little misguided about this. What's wisdom? Wisdom is understanding the way the world works and then making good decisions in light of that. Understanding the way the world works and making good decisions in light of that. And as I said, Ephesians chapter 5 does say that God wants us to live wisely. Now, can you see how wisdom is different from trying to find God's special will for me? Trying to find God's special will for me is where you say, I need God to tell me exactly what to do, which move to make, or else I'll disobey. Whereas wisdom, on the other hand, is a lifelong process of learning, of observing the world, and, and even more than that, of drinking deeply of the Scriptures, so that we can see things rightly and then make good decisions. God has made the world an orderly place. There are patterns, aren't there? Now, because of sin... The world is not actually perfectly predictable, but it's mostly predictable, isn't it? You see, a married man and a woman who's not his wife, they work very closely together, and work sends them away on a trip together. To save money, they share a room. You don't need a message from God to tell you what's quite likely to happen when they're tired, away from accountability, awake in the middle of the night in a bed together. Now, God never says in in the Bible, you must not travel with a member of the opposite sex. But it does say, as we actually just saw at the end of the last uh, bit, that it's God's will you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That is a matter of righteousness. Well, wisdom teaches you the specifics of applying that matter of righteousness to the specific question of whether or not you would ever travel alone with a member of the opposite sex who's not your wife. Or or maybe even whether you'd even take a job that requires you to be away from your wife alone for months at a time. 
Now, where I think, I think Christians can go wrong on wisdom a couple of ways, one of the ways I think we can go wrong on wisdom is we can think wisdom is just, it's something that I can choose to listen to or ignore it if I want. But actually, what we've just seen there is God tells us to be wise. And so if you knowingly do something that's unwise, particularly something that you think could well lead you into sin... That can actually be disobedience as well, can't it? You know, perhaps you know you have a history of drinking too much. There are certain places or social situations that aren't sinful in themselves, but would be foolish for you to be in. Perhaps it would be foolish for you to have certain things in your cupboards or on your phone. If you know that this thing often leads to a sinful place, but you still go there, you still do it, Well, that foolishness is actually probably a sinful foolishness. But foolishness is not always sinful. Sometimes it's just foolishness. But one of the things as you read the Bible is you find that it is always wise to do what's right. Foolishness is not always sinful, but it is always wise to do what's right. And it's usually right to do what's wise because God wants us to be wise. Now you can get wisdom from lots of places, can't you? So Proverbs chapter 1 verse 8 says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. As painful as it can be sometimes to hear that, God wants us, God says it's wise, to listen to the wisdom of our parents. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 22 says, It's good to ask other people for advice and to learn from their experience. Plans fail, it says, for lack of counsel. But with many advisors, they succeed. Isn't there a lot of wisdom in this room right now, all the people sitting around you? And I hope we're not too proud to ask other people for their advice and then take it on board. In fact, the book of Proverbs itself is a wonderful source of wisdom, isn't it? I wonder if you read the book of Proverbs. I think it's a treasure. I think it's a treasure that oftentimes too many Christians neglect. Read a chapter of Proverbs every day for a month and just see what happens. Now, Proverbs says that you can learn wisdom from observing the world around you. So Proverbs chapter 6 says, watch ants and learn from ants the value of hard work. In fact, you'll also learn from them the value of saving, verse 8, so you've got enough for when you hit hard times. Whereas verse 10, you learn from ants that if you're lazy, you end up poor and hungry. You can get all of that wisdom just from watching ants. But do you see what Proverbs is assuming there? It's assuming that it's possible to gain wisdom simply from observing the world, which of course even people that don't have the Bible can do. And so there's lots of wisdom out there in books and courses and all sorts of things by all sorts of people, non-Christians, podcasts, psychologists, doctors, nutritionists, of course, as a Christian... It is appropriate to learn from them. But we need to be really careful with their wisdom. Why? Because they don't have the right foundation. Look at Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You see, if wisdom is understanding the world rightly and then making good decisions... 
then ultimate wisdom must be remembering God's plans for the world. How can you understand the world rightly unless you've factored in, in fact, begun with, God's plans for the world? If God is on a mission to see lost people saved, then it's wise to do things that are on that mission. Now, a financial advisor, and there are probably some amongst us, you've got lots of wisdom, they've got lots of wisdom, for really helpful things. Should you buy a house? Should you buy shares? Should you pay off your credit card first? Lots of, lots of helpful stuff that they can give wisdom on. You know what they'll never do, tell you to do? They'll never tell you to take a week off work, unpaid leave, to go and share the gospel on a week summer mission somewhere. At Summerfest on the Central Coast in January. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Everyone should do. That's wise. <laughs> you see, if that's what God's doing in the world, if he is, if he is bringing people to, to, to know him through the gospel, and if there's any way that you can find yourself more involved in that, that's an incredibly wise way to live. You just won't hear it from your financial advisor. The wisest decisions are the ones that bring God the most glory. This is where I think Christians can go wrong. We can think being wise is, is very much just a horizontal level thing. No, 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 it's, it's vertical. It's, what, it's thinking about God. It's obeying his commands. It's helping people meet Jesus. It's anything that makes you more like Jesus. Even if the world thinks what you're doing is really dumb. Do you see, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There should be lots of places in our life where we would say, if it wasn't for the gospel, there's no way I would do that. But because of the gospel, I know that that is a truly wise decision. I wonder how gospel-shaped your decisions are. In fact, I've heard from you, some of you guys just in the last couple of days about decisions you've made as you've reflected on the scriptures in, in church. Very, very good. Very encouraging. How gospel-shaped your decisions. That is true wisdom. All right, there's my side note on wisdom. But now we've got our approach for working out what God wants us to do without looking at your booklets. Let's see if we've got it. What's step one? Someone. What do you, what's the first question you ask as you face a decision? Step one. Yeah, you pick up your Bible. Yeah, what does the Bible say? What are the matters of righteousness, right and wrong, God's moral will, his commands, his teachings, what does it tell you? Step one. What's the Bible say? Or, or what's, right, what's right and wrong? in this decision. Step two, you ask, what's wisdom? What's wise? Knowing myself, knowing my family, knowing my situation. Knowing God's plans, what's wise? Step three, then you work out, what's trivial? Everything else doesn't matter. Let's hit some examples that'll make it a bit clearer. Page 18. Your car. You get in your car, turn it on, and you wonder, will God guide me? Well, let's see. Step one. What parts of this decision does the Bible tell me are matters of righteousness? You get your phone out, open your Bible app, and you search for the word car. It says, did you mean Canaan? <laughs> you won't find the word car, but what does it say? Sometimes you, have to, you can't do this mechanically. You have to think. 
Think like God thinks. What does God want me to think about? What's important to him? Love him. Love your neighbor. It does say to love your neighbor as yourself, which means as you drive your car, you should be kind to other drivers, even if they treat you badly. They cut you off, give you the finger. Five minutes later, they're broken down. It's God's will that you... The, 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 what's the Samaritan parable is all about this. It's God's will to pull over and help them. The Bible does say, Romans chapter 13, 14, you should obey the authorities. What chapter is it? 14, 13. The Bible says to obey the authorities and so you should keep the road rules. You should obey the speed limit even if the cops aren't watching, even if there's no speed cameras because God's watching. And that's how he wants us to live. You see, there is actually a Christ-like way to drive and God has actually given us surprisingly detailed guidance on that. Matters of right and wrong. But do you notice that it's also taught us what bits of driving are more important to God than others? All those things are far more important to God than where you're driving to. It's similar with uh, where to live. Let's talk about where you should live whether you should buy a house. What's the Bible say, right and wrong? Matters of righteousness. Well, it's got a lot to say, doesn't it, about your motive. Jesus says, don't store up treasure on earth. Are you chasing the easy life, the secure life, the wealthy life? Jesus says, don't, or status. Jesus says, don't store up treasure here on earth. Instead, be driven by a love for others, a desire to share the gospel. And God also has a lot to say about how it is that you should live wherever you live, how to be a good neighbour, love your wife, bring your children up to know the Lord. So as you make the decision, where do I live, put those things first of all in the decision. Where can I be a good neighbour? Where can I love my wife? There are some places to live that it's hard to be a good neighbour. You never see your neighbours. Where would be a place that will help me bring my children up to know and love the Lord? See, what sort of house would help you best love your family? This is actually where wisdom comes in. You've got the matters of righteousness, but now you've got to work out wisdom. And I think sometimes it can be wiser to live in a yucker, cheaper house. And not have to spend so much time at work to pay for it. That'll give you more time to, to serve your family, to bring your children up to know and love Jesus. You might ask the question, can I find a house that'll be cheap enough that means my wife doesn't have to go to work but can give herself fully to helping the children mature well as humans and Christians? We could do more evangelism as a family. We could spend more time in the Word. We could spend more time helping out at church. Would living in a cheaper, yucca house free us up to do more of that? But this is where wisdom's not always the same for everyone, isn't it? Because actually, sometimes, the slightly more expensive house, or even the much more expensive house, that's the one that gives you more time to do that because it's closer to work, and so you spend less time commuting. You see, wisdom's not simple. You've got to think it through. And so Christians with godly motives can make different decisions. This is not a license to judge everybody else's houses. But you see, in all these cases, the Bible tells us that the motives and how it is that we live where we live are far, far more important than the name of the suburb 
what colour house it is, whether it's got a garage or a carport. Trivia. Now, do you see how liberating this is? Sometimes Christians can spend their whole lives living in fear that they might accidentally disobey God's will for their life. What if God wants me to be a truck driver, but I work at Woolies? God, I've got to know. I don't want to accidentally disobey you. Well, has God said anything about being a truck driver or working in a supermarket? No. Well, then as long as you're keeping in mind the things that he has said, then you're free to choose. Do you like trucks? Drive trucks. Do you like talking to people? Work at Woolworths. You've got freedom as a Christian. You have freedom as a Christian. Have you got the big point? In the Bible, we've got all that we need to live a life that God loves. And in fact, finally, point six, page 18, we've not been promised any other forms of guidance. Now, I'm not saying God can't speak in any other way. I'm not saying he never will. God's God. He can speak however he likes. What I'm saying is he doesn't promise to. He doesn't promise signs or inner voices or any of those things that you'd read about in the popular books on guidance in the biggest Christian bookshops today. We shouldn't expect God to do what he hasn't promised to do. Instead, we should be looking where he has promised to speak. And when you look at all the other forms of guidance that are popular with some Christians today, they all have massive weaknesses. In fact, I'm going to show you they're dangerous. Let's have a quick look at this. Number one, they read the Bible wrongly. For example, some people think we should ask God to send a sign. And that's based on what Gideon does in Judges chapter 6. We talked about this. Gideon puts out the wool and he says, if it's wet in the morning but the ground is dry, I'll know that this is God's will. It'll be a sign. Now, here's the thing. If you read Judges chapter 6 carefully, you find out it wasn't a good thing that Gideon asked for a sign. It was actually Gideon's immaturity because God had actually already told him. Start in verse 36. That's the bottom paragraph there on page 18. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I'll place a wool fleece on your threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I'll know that you'll save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. (laughs) Do you notice there that Gideon mentions twice, as you promised, as you said, God had already told him what he would do and what he was to, to do. And in fact, he'd already said it two times earlier in the chapter, verse 14 and verse 16. He had a clear command from God, a clear promise from God. Now, God was very patient with Gideon and he did give him the sign. But even Gideon knew that what he was doing wasn't great. I didn't put it in here, but if you were to look up verse 39, he says, God, don't be angry with me, but I want another sign. Don't be angry with me, God. Now, God's very kind to Gideon, but should we copy him? Is Gideon a great example of faith in this chapter? No, it's an example of lacking faith. If Gideon had more faith, if Gideon was really spiritual, he would have trusted what God had already said. What about open doors? Uh, page 19. How do they, some people think that we should... Um, if God opens a door, it's a sign that he wants them to do something. God must really want me to take this job because he's opened the door. They've sent me an offer. Well, this one also misreads the Bible. Now, Paul does actually talk about open doors in a couple of places. You can write them down if you want. Colossians 4.3, 1 Corinthians 16.9, and 2 Corinthians 2.12, which I've put it here. 
But the thing with Paul and open doors is that Paul never uses them as a sign of God's will. Doors are just opportunities. When you see an open door, you don't have to go through it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul has a wide open door to preach the gospel in Troas, verse 12. But he decides not to take it and he goes to another place instead. Paul rejects a door that God has opened. Look at verse 12. Now, when, I'd been to, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. An open door, it's not guidance necessarily. It's just an opportunity. It's actually up to you with your Bible in hand to work out which opportunities you actually ought to take. Now, one of the dangers of using open doors as a sign of God's guidance is it can make you think that God wants your life to be easy. You know, I got in, God opened that door, that means God must want me to do it, right? Well, not necessarily. God wants you to be godly, not necessarily have a comfortable, cruisy life. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul says, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Isn't that weird? There are many who oppose him. Paul, Paul faced terrible persecution, heartache, and we'd call that a closed door, but Paul says it's a wonderful opportunity. Sometimes God will put us through terrible heartache for his work. Sometimes it will seem like he just shuts doors in our face to test our endurance. And sometimes the way that we keep trying glorifies him as it shows how important he is and his work is to us. So open doors, they're not reliable guidance. So what about peace? Is that why Paul didn't go through the door? Maybe we're supposed to wait for God's peace. And it does kind of sound like that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But I think actually as you read the context, it's, he's not saying that he didn't feel his spiritual sense of peace and that's why. It's more just that as he, it just didn't seem right to him. <laughs> it didn't seem like a good decision to keep going without Titus. Think about Jesus for a second. Jesus, before he goes to the cross in the Garden of Golgotha, did he have a tremendous sense of inner peace that this was the will of God? No, he was in anguish. But it was the will of God. If you don't feel peace about a decision, do you know what that means? It means you are human. It doesn't necessarily mean the Lord is withholding peace to get you to back out. Big decisions are big. It's just normal to be anxious about them. You probably will be anxious before your wedding. It's normal. In fact, what we've actually done with peace is we put it in the wrong order. We think we wait for peace, that's how we know it's the right decision, and then we go. But Philippians chapter 4, which some people come to as a sign of, um, as a, a text about God's peace and guidance, Philippians chapter 4 doesn't say that we get peace before we make the decision. It says peace comes from entrusting the outcome to God even when we're not sure we've made the right decision. It doesn't say peace will tell us what to do. It says as we trust God and, and offer up our course of action to Him, that's what gives us peace. So we get it in the wrong order. Now all the other different forms of guidance have the same weakness. They read the Bible wrongly. Here's the second problem, much more briefly. 
All the other forms of guidance that are out there are very uncertain. Problem two, they're so uncertain. Now, you get an open door. Is that a guidance or is it a test? You get this inner feeling that I should marry so-and-so. But how do you know that's not just your desires? Jeremiah says that our hearts are deceitful. I don't feel peace. Is that God saying, don't do it? Or is God telling me and trying to get me to step out in faith? Do you see these other methods, they all end up tying you in knots. And that actually kind of makes God seem bad, doesn't it? Here's problem number three. The third problem with all these other methods is you can end up doubting God's goodness. Why is God making it so hard? It's kind of like God's got this wonderful plan for my life. He just won't tell me what it is. He's playing hide and seek. He's a bit sneaky. Why is he so sneaky? Why doesn't he just make his will obvious to me? That would be the loving thing to do. Well, the answer is he has in the Bible. Fourthly, the other thing that makes these other methods uh, problematic is that they are dangerous. Why are they dangerous? Because they take our focus off the Bible. They take your eyes off God's word and they get you to look at something else, a feeling, something inside you, your circumstances. And you know, every time you look at something other than the Bible, the Bible becomes less and less your guide. But think about what Jesus says. The person who built their house on the rock was the person who built their house on what? On his word. And finally, problem number five. All these other approaches to guidance, they actually make us focus on ourselves. They make us selfish. In fact, this is why they're so seductive. This is why they're bestsellers. Doors, feelings, inner peace. All these things, they all focus on me. A special word that God has for me. Something God only says to me. It makes me feel very special. It puts me in the center of the world and makes God my servant, answering all of my questions. You want to know the truth? You can live in a lot of different places. You can work a lot of different jobs. You can be friends with a lot of different people and none of those things are sinful. Those are your concerns. But God's concerns are the gospel. Bringing Jesus glory. Making you more like him. Seeing people saved. And so the Bible's approach to guidance actually helps us do what we saw this morning that we ought to do. It helps us remember that God is God and it helps us to care about the things that matter to him. Do you know what it gives us? It gives us freedom. You can make the decision. How freeing is that? You can make the decision. It gives you clarity. The information that you need is in the book. And it gives you confidence. Because you know his invisible guidance will work it out. You can trust him. Do you know the only thing it doesn't give you? It just doesn't give you the easy answers. But that's kind of the fun bit. As you learn to think the way God does, the way God's revealed it to us in Jesus through his spirit, in the gospel, in the Bible... I wonder if you'll trust him to tell you what's important. Why don't we pray?
Heavenly Father, we pray that we won't be like the pagans who worry about what they'll eat, what they'll drink, what they'll wear. Heavenly Father, you know all our needs. Help us, please, to seek first your kingdom, your righteousness, and trust that all the things that we need will be given to us as well. Help us not to worry about our decisions, not to worry about the future, to trust that you hold the future. And instead, help us, Lord, each day to look at your word, learn what you say is important, and make decisions that are right and wise and please you. In Jesus' name, amen.